This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join in on the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode or any other, please join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hi, this is Tucker Smallwood from Star Trek Enterprise. You're listening to Trek FM. knows she knows everything i'm beginning to believe it would you be all right oh you don't have to worry about pilar it's a wonderful day roberto what are you worrying about about you me why because i'm so happy i wish you weren't here maria I mean it. I'm thinking about what's going to happen to you after the bridge. Can't I go with you? Hmm? But I'm sorry I'll get us horses. I know we can't escape without them, but he'll get us horses. I know it. You've got to understand, Maria. I'm in this war to the finish. I can't have anything serious in my life. A man doing what I'm doing never knows what's going to happen. Whatever happens to you will happen to me. Welcome, boomers, to another episode of Warp 5. I'm your host today, Brandon Shea Metella. Uh, Floyd is unable to join us tonight, and we miss him dearly, but he's on vacation in Riza, and uh, he's having fun over there drinking and playing with puppies. But uh, joining me today in his stead is friend of the network, friend of the show, co-host of Stage 9, Mike Schindler. How's it going, Mike? It's going okay. How are you? I am doing just peachy, and I'm happy that you joined me for this. We we had an idea that we were bouncing around, and I messaged you about it, and right away you said, hey, that's a cool idea. And uh, what we're going to be doing, we're going to do a series of, of uh, podcasts. If, you know, if we get a decent response, we'll keep going with it. But let's do movie night. One yeah. cool thing about Enterprise was that they had movie night on their ship. And while we didn't always see the movies that they were watching, they were talking about it quite a bit. Like, it was this interesting little social gathering that they had. And whenever they did show movie night, like, the the room that they were in, which I'm guessing was probably just where they ate. Yeah, it was, you it know, was the, the mess hall or whatever. Because the, yeah, the mess hall. They said on Memory Elf or something, like, they needed to get permission from Chef to use it, so... Yeah, so they just went in there, but it was always packed. There was always like, you know, Enterprise had like 80 people on it, and there was always like 40 people sitting there watching the movie, right? So, you know, it was this sense of camaraderie, this sense of fellowship, and I don't know about you, Mike. I don't I don't know how big of a movie fan you are. I mean, I, I don't know if you like movies or not. But uh, when I was a teenager, I mean, I had friends that we would watch movies together all the time. And we would discuss them. And we would try and find obscure films to watch together. And it was a fun thing that we did for fellowship. It was a fun thing that we did to, you know, expand our cinema knowledge. And it was really... It was really fun and interesting to do because I discovered a lot of weird things. Like, I, I remember the first time I watched, um, oh, see if I can remember. What's the, 
uh, that's going to come back to me. But it was oh, one yeah, that I had always heard about. I never watched, but uh, I'll, I'll I'll think about it in the middle of something here. But I remember when we finally got to watching this one movie, uh, this one horror movie. What's the one where uh, I spit on your grave? That's it. Oh. When we finally got around to watching, I spit on your grave. It was like, you know, this movie that we'd heard about and read about, and we finally watched it together. And and anyways, I don't know. Did you ever? Did you do things like this with your friends, Mike? Well, yeah, you know, like I, this is something which I kind of inherited from one of my friends who's slightly older than me who used to do this with his friends. And it, that it was something called the Tuesday Night Movie Club, where every Tuesday we had like a schedule and everything. And every Tuesday, all of my friends would get together and we would watch a movie. And, um, you know, it was one of those things where it was almost like the highlight of the week in, in, in a lot of ways. And when I saw what they were doing on enterprise it really struck a chord because for one thing it's like oh it's movie night but then oh it's on tuesdays you know and everything like i was reading the entry from from memory (laughs) alpha and the way that they sort of like present it they're like it was a weekly thing it was originally on tuesdays at some point trip decided to make it a nightly thing or at least that was his idea but then it went back to a weekly thing i'm like that sounds just like my life because this is the type of thing where it's like, yeah, you get together every Tuesday and then you got to wait a whole week. And at some point you're like, we should be doing this every day. And then, you know, you do that for like a week and then people are like, too much, too much. Bring it back, bring it back. But, you know, I still do this. Like, it's something which my family and I have started doing now uh, where we try to get together once a week if we can. And we've been, like, doing things like going through series like none of them had ever seen the Marvel movies. So we started at the beginning and watched every, you know. So I, I really appreciate this. And this is something that I really responded to on Enterprise. And when you were like, we should watch the movies that they watch on movie night, I was like, yes, because it's... It's like we are having movie night with Trip and Phlox and T-Paul and all the rest of them. And it's like, that's so cool. That's so cool. I mean, like, we watched this movie that we're going to be talking about today, and then I turned on the episode that it's in, and I see them watching the movie, and I'm like, I just did that. Wow, they're having a really different reaction to it than I did. But this is cool, you know? Yeah, right on. And you know what's neat about these is a lot of these movies that they mention on here I haven't seen yet. Yeah, me like too. this one that we're going to talk about tonight. I hadn't. Uh, we're going to be talking about for whom the bell tolls. That's the first one that's mentioned in uh, the run of the show in the episode Dear Doctor, uh, which was I think episode thirteen of season one. And I'd never seen this before. I'd heard of it, you know. And it, it was just one of those movies that always fell through the cracked and cracks and. I think kind of the reason it fell through the cracks for me is it's it's not really the type of movie that I generally like to watch. Like I remember when I was a teenager, I was always I was trying to watch the best picture winners for like all of them. You know, going back all the way to the beginning. And uh I watched Dr. Zhivago and Lawrence of Arabia like back to back and I'm like these are just not my movies. You know, these long epic romance kind of films you know they're just they really weren't my type of movies so I didn't really continue watching those kinds of movies so I kind of figured well I'm a little bit older now I'm about 20 years older maybe I'm gonna like this movie a bit more and uh, I guess we'll tell you at the end if I did or not so uh, we'll kind of keep that for the end but uh, yeah I'm totally looking forward to this so uh, for those who got excited and thought we were going to talk about I Spit on Your Grave we're not and that will probably not be one of the movies that we talk about for movie night here. Although, you know, I mean, I will say, you know, like you're saying, not talking about I Spit on Your Grave and For Whom the Bell Tolls being, you know, like this, you know, romantic, epic, Oscar bait type of thing. Like, and I think this, a lot of this has to do with, you know, the tendencies of, of the people involved behind the scenes, but there's a pretty substantial amount of, of horror movies, which, which are, are going to be covered here on movie night, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I, I think that that's pretty cool. You know, I mean, just like everyone else, like they're not going after, you know, all of the prestige pictures. They, there's a lot of fun stuff, you know, thrown into the mix as well, which, which is really cool. You know? mm-hmm. Right on. Um, as we discuss this though, we're not really going to discuss how it fits into the episode. Because it really doesn't, if, I don't think. It's yeah, just, and we're not going to see if there's any parallels with the episode or whatnot. We're just going to talk about the movie. It's it's experiential. It's, you know, this is the conversation that you'd be having. I mean, you know, Tarantino always talks about this. It's like after you go see a movie, you got to go out for a slice of pie and talk about the movie. You know, this is, you know, the crew. We're going out for a slice of pie with, with Hoshi. 
and uh, and and talking about this movie, or like possibly um, pineapple cake with uh, Hoshi and Reed. There you go. <laughs> right on. Uh, excellent. Right on. Well, should we just jump into our conversation then? Yeah. We won't be going to America this time, but always I go with you wherever you go. Understand? You'll go now, Maria. No, no, I stay with you, Roberto. No, Maria. What I do now, I do alone. I couldn't do it if you were here. If you go, then I go too. Don't you see how it is? Whichever one there is is. No, no. We can go if you're bored. No, no, I'd like to stay and see what happens. You won't be disappointed. The ending's classic. No, not the film. I'm sensing a rising emotional undercurrent in the room. I'm curious to see if it culminates in some kind of group response. They don't have movies where you come from, do they? Well, we had something similar a few hundred years ago, but they lost their appeal when people discovered their real lives were more interesting. If you go, I go too. Oh, still. It's nice to take a break from real life every now and then, don't you think? I suppose it is. Remember last night? Our time is now. It's remarkable, Doctor. Even fictional characters seem to elicit human compassion. My shipmates have calmly faced any number of dangers, and yet a simple movie can bring tears to their eyes. Why don't you give us a quick summary of the film, Mike? Okay, uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls is based on an Ernest Hemingway novel. Uh, it was directed by Sam Wood, I want to say, and it stars uh, Gary Cooper and Ingrid Bergman and a few other people. And it was made in 1943, and it is about uh, the Spanish Civil War in, like, 1937 or whatever it is, which was sort of like the beginnings of, of World War II, I guess. And Gary Cooper is an American who's come to to Spain to fight on the side of the re- Republic— I'm not really too up on my my Spanish history, I have to say. The rebels. They're the, they're the rebels, or they're the the Maquis. We can call them the Maquis. Are they? They're the rebels. No. Okay, I don't know. Anyway, they're, they're... <laughs> um, and and yeah, there's there's like a, a bridge, which is very very important to to uh, the the war. And everything's kind of centering around that bridge and, you know, protecting the bridge or blowing it up and all this stuff. And he meets a woman and there's a romance and hijinks ensue. Mm-hmm. Right on. Um, now, this movie, the one that we watched, now something interesting about this while I was doing a little bit of research is that this film was originally released in a road show format. Now, as far as I understand what a road show is, now you can correct me if I'm wrong, is it's a movie that didn't really... Like, it wasn't given a wide release. It would just kind of travel around. Is that correct? Yeah, a roadshow format. It was usually, like, a big prestige picture like this. And, you know, and it, it, they would really make it like an event. It would almost be like a concert, you know, where they would go from city to city with this print. And, you know, there there usually wouldn't even be, like, credits or anything on it. They would give out, like, programs before the movie. There'd be a, a, an overture at the start. There'd be an intermission, you know, in the middle. And it was really sort of like an event. It wasn't just like, hey, let's go down to the multiplex and watch a movie. It was, you know, we're going to the show, you know, and and, uh, there's been a few, I mean, it was really big, you know, in this time period in the 50s and stuff and a little bit into the 60s. There have been a few times over the years where they've sort of brought that back. Um, Apocalypse Now did it. Um, in addition to having like a, a, a regular release, lots of times they'll do this like first and then, you know, later on you can go see it at any theater, you know, and maybe in like a truncated version or something. A great prime example of this that just happened in recent years was um, uh, The Hateful Eight, 
where they did a 70 millimeter roadshow version. It was a longer version of the movie. There was an intermission, all that stuff. There were programs. I've got my program right here for all those people watching at home on this audio podcast. And um, you, you for, for like Hateful Eight, it was like a, a big sort of deal. And then if you went to see it in your multiplex, it was digital projection. There was no intermission. The movie was shorter. And it was just kind of like going to see a movie like normal. So this was a big deal. Road shows were a big deal. They still are whenever they happen, uh, which is very, very rare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've never seen a road show picture myself. Um, so now the information on Wikipedia said that it was originally released as in this roadshow format at 170 minutes, not counting the intermission. And then for re-release, it was trimmed to 134 minutes, and it was not seen at its full length until the 90s when it was archivally restored to 168 minutes. Now, the version that I watched was two hours and 45 minutes, but it had an overture and an intermission in it. I think, and this is just a guess, because mine was the same way. The intermission in there, I think, was... I I think, this is, like I said, just a guess, but... (laughs) I think the intermission that we saw, like they probably played it like at the end of a reel where it's like, this is the intermission and here's the music while you're getting up and going to the bathroom. And then is like one of those things where it's sort of like, you know, it ends and they're like, okay, we're just not going to have anything for like five minutes so that people actually do have a chance to, you know, buy some more concessions or whatever it is they did back then and come back. So like... It was sort of built into that, and then they they started it up, you know, a few minutes later, and that would account for the missing five minutes or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. That's my guess. I cool. Don't yeah, that would make sense, I guess, because yeah, they wouldn't play just an intermission title like they wouldn't waste a roll of film on just saying intermission and playing it, right? Not back then. Today they would because everything is plattered. So you got it. Like we we did a a show when I was a projectionist. We we showed Gods and Generals, which is like four hours and fourteen minutes long or whatever. And they literally did have like ten minutes of black just spliced into the middle of the movie, just so that you wouldn't have to start it up again. You wouldn't have to like thread another movie or anything like that. So yeah. Okay. Right on. So this was this movie was written. Uh, sorry, this movie was based on a novel that was written by Ernest Hemingway that was released uh, just a couple of years earlier. And uh, there's some interesting information that this could have been partially inspired by a true story that happened in his life. Now, so I reached out to Phyllis Strong, who was co-executive producer on Enterprise, and she was a co-writer with uh, Michael Sussman on many episodes of the show. And I asked her, you know told her what we were doing with this episode and whatnot and asked her, did she have any words on the, uh, on the movie? And she said that the movie reflects Tripp's devil-may-care exterior that conceals his, dare I say it, tender side. The story was written by tough guy author Ernest Hemingway, who was an ambulance driver at the front in World War I. Wounded, Hemingway fell in love with the nurse who cared for him. It's a beautiful love story from a man's man. Also, the John Donne quote also includes the line, any man's death diminishes me, and it's an expression of Tripp's and Star Trek's humanism. Now, in the scene in the episode, we do see Tripp crying and, and uh, reflecting on the movie while he's watching, and I did watch that today. So, uh, But you have a little bit of information on Ernest Hemingway. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you know about Mr. Ernest Hemingway? Well, I don't necessarily have a lot of information on him, but I do have like uh, an interesting sort of like relationship with him in that we both grew up in the same town and not at the same time uh he he had left long before i was born but like i I mean like i literally like grew up a block away from his birthplace like i every day on my way to school i passed ernest hemingway's house where he was born and then right down the street from that is the ernest hemingway museum and at the high school is you know everything is hemingway hemingway you know there's even a room in the school which has been you know fully restored and and um preserved the the way that 
it was when he was there, and it was apparently his favorite room at the school. So there's a lot of sort of like hero worship of Hemingway in this town, which is hilarious because he left the town when he was like 20 years old and never came back and called it a town of broad lawns and narrow minds, which I love because it's true. And... (laughs) And you know it's 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 just one of those things where you know it's it's a very sort of like Hemingway thing where it's like there there's this town which is like really really proud of him and really really into Hemingway and yet he's like you guys are a bunch of morons you know and and I I kind of love that I kind of love that a lot and um yeah because of that like we're sort of like given a lot of like you know info about Hemingway growing up you know especially in high school and like we read a farewell to arms and all that stuff and sort of like you know given the whole backstory of him and his relationship with America and 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 everything and and how he sort of uh, presents himself in his in his writing and in his sort of like public persona and uh it's it's kind of fascinating but every time I you know read a Hemingway novel which granted is not often at all or you know watch a Hemingway movie I can't help but sort of like place it in that context and that certainly occurred when I was watching this movie yeah I think the only Ernest Hemingway novel I've ever read is the old man in the sea. Yeah. Um, but my wife is an English major, and I didn't actually put this together until you and I were just talking just before we started recording here. And w- my wife and I, our first trip that we ever took together was to Cuba. And while we were there, we actually went and we visited Ernest Hemingway's house in Cuba. And while we were there, like everything was like barred off and they have those those poles with the felt thing in between them. And while we were there, like there was a whole bunch of people going around and this one Cuban woman who was like standing in the room who was like a guard or something, she like looks over at me and my wife and she like points at us and then she like points at this chair and she's like, huh? So you want to sit down in this chair? Like she didn't speak English, but she's like, you want to sit down here? And I'm like, okay, sure. So she opened up this felt thing, let my wife sit down in one of Hemingway's chairs. So I've got a picture of my wife sitting in one of Ernest Hemingway's chairs. And I mean, like, I'm like, so I gave the lady like five bucks. I'm like, I don't know what to do. I mean, like, you know, they, they function on tips there. But then actually, as we were talking just now, I realized as well, like I've never, I haven't sought this out, but we also took a cruise that ended up in the Florida Keys and there's an Ernest Hemingway Museum in the Florida Keys that we visited as well. It's called Hemingway House and there's like cats everywhere. I guess this guy just loved cats, but it's like another place that he lived and spent a lot of time and I I just, I think it's funny that I didn't realize that while I was watching that movie today that this is who this person was and I don't know, just a little... Yeah. Side story. There you go. Well, <laughs> hey, if you ever come to Chicago and uh, and visit me, we can take a stroll down to the down to the birthplace on uh, Oak Park Avenue in Oak Park, Illinois, and uh, I'll show you where he where he was born. Are you kidding me? The place where you're taking me, if I ever go to Chicago, is that uh, that restaurant, um, Lovell. Oh, oh, the <laughs> Jim Lovell's. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> So, for information on that, where was where were you talking about? Which uh, podcast was that? Great Shot Kid, Great, great Shot, Shot Kid. Kid. Yeah, go listen to Great Shot Kid over on the Nerd Party Network. Yeah. So, <laughs> anywho, um, well, let's talk a little bit about the characters in this movie. Uh, we'll start with Gary Cooper, who played a character named Robert Jordan. Now, Gary Cooper was born May seventh, nineteen oh one, and he died May thirteenth, nineteen sixty one. However, this guy was acting for only thirty five years, but he was in eighty four feature films. And he won the Best Actor Academy Award for High Noon and Sergeant York. And I went, I scrolled through his list, and I didn't read every single one of these 84 titles while I was researching today, but this is the first movie I think I've ever seen this guy in. Yeah, it's weird because, like, he was obviously really big back then. I mean, he was really big here. He got nominated for Best Actor and everything like that. And you always hear uh, you know, him being referenced in Die Hard and everything. And I, I think I've seen Mr. Deeds... And I don't think I've ever seen, oh, I've seen High Noon, you know, but but I haven't really seen much. Like, he's one of those guys who was in, like, a, a lot of Westerns, and I don't particularly watch a lot of Westerns. And the thing that I kept on thinking while watching this is, like, man, he looks a whole lot like Kevin Costner. 
Like, what's he up with does. that? He does. <laughs> yes. Absolutely he does. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking, man, if they did a movie on this guy's life, they could get a young Costner to play this guy. Yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, I think I think the name rings a bell, and I think the name rings a bell because um, Sean Connery's character was talking about him in Hunt for Red October, right, as this, like, idol that they wanted to go and live on a farm like when they were, because they were defecting from Russia, right, with the submarine, and I think they re- referenced Gary Cooper as like how they wanted to live the way that Gary Cooper lived, or something like that. So, I don't know. Yeah. How do you, how did you think his acting is? Is he a good actor? What do you think? I thought he was fine, but at the same time, like I, I really felt like he didn't have much to do here. I mean, I, I, he was it was a very almost like passive role. You know, I mean, he, it was definitely told from his perspective, but I felt like more than anything, he was kind of like observing the movie through, throughout most of it. And because of that, he didn't really have like, you know, it's, he gets nominated for best actor. And I understand that it's one of those things where it's like, this is a prestige picture. Yes. Everyone loves the movie. And so everybody's going to get nominated for everything. But I really felt like he doesn't really have much to do in this movie. And maybe maybe that's just uh, I don't know me expecting something else or something, but that's definitely the impression that I got. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought he I thought he did fine. I mean, it just kind of a basic role. I mean, I don't know. Maybe this is blasphemy for for film lovers out there, but I again I've never really seen him before. I think this is the first movie that I've ever seen him in. Uh, more fascinating for me was watching Ingrid Ingrid Bergman in this movie because I've seen so many Ingrid Bergman movies when it, you know throughout the Hitchcock movies that I've watched and throughout the 900 Ingmar Bergman films that she's been in that I've seen you know so I've seen tons and tons of movies with her in it but uh, this was her first color movie that she was ever in and I, I, I got a question on this one here before we get into it so ha- I think we got to address it for a couple of the characters. Have you ever seen Touch of Evil? Hell yeah, I've seen Touch of Evil. The movie's amazing. <laughs> I know all about the opening shot, but I've never seen Touch of Evil. It's but one I got of the to best ask, movies you'll ever see. <laughs> yes. It's so awesome. Um, what is the more ludicrous whitewashing? Charlton Heston as a Mexican or Ingrid Bergman as this Spanish late like 19 year old girl like she's like 28 years old when she made this movie and she's playing this 19 year old girl and she is like the like her teeth are the whitest teeth i've ever seen in my life and i mean like she's like the whitest blondest girl ever i would say of the two and i think there's been you know a lot of other movies which are you know much more offensive in that regard but of the two i would say this is is the worst because not to spoil one of the best lines in Touch of Evil, but there's this amazing scene in Touch of Evil where, for those people who don't know, yes, Charlton Heston plays a Mexican, and he's married to um, an American white, a white American woman played by Janet Lee, and there's this, there's the whole thing where like you know Orson Welles is trying to catch them or whatever, and <laughs> there's a whole thing where like. He's going after Charlton Heston, and he knows Charlton Heston. And then he sees Janet Lee, and he's like, who's that? And they're like, oh, that's Charlton Heston's wife. And Orson Welles says, really? She doesn't look Mexican either. So at least in that movie, they called it out, you know? (laughs) Which is hilarious. But here they don't call it out, you know, and I mean, like, it's really, it's, re- I, yes, obviously, I mean, I understand that this movie was made in 1943 and all that stuff, but the uh, the racial stereotypes and everything, yeah, not really good at all. <laughs> what are you talking about, Gypsy? <laughs> it's really, it's, re- yeah, really, you know, kind of crazy. And I mean, you know, per- perhaps that also influenced sort of my, my, um, my my opinion on this movie and whether or not that's fair i don't know is it fair it might be fair but regardless the whole time i was watching this i was like i cannot believe this i mean obviously i can believe it given the time period and everything but at the same time i'm like this is just cringeworthy you know what i mean yes yeah no i don't know like 
like they're, they're referring to each other as gypsy like like hey gypsy what's up like yeah it's 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 crazy <laughs> i just, just i don't know it's really bizarre but they're all they're all painted and and it doesn't quite work especially because it's in color yeah right i mean like i guess with touch of evil it's a black and white film but anyways it doesn't it doesn't work in in touch of evil either just for the record but just for the record okay so um ingmar bergman uh after casablanca uh she played the part of maria for whom the bell tolls it was her first color film and she was nominated for best actress for this now ernest hemingway apparently handpicked her for this role like he thought that she was Maria which is something that I find fascinating that well partly for him having any choice at all into who plays the role but again also the fact that this novel that he would have written he would have chosen this white Swedish actress to be his Spanish lead in the film so yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And again, like in terms of her performance, I mean, I don't know. I think part of it or a big part of it is the writing because, I mean, like we've seen Ingrid Bergman, like you're saying, in a million things where she's amazing, whether it's Casablanca or Notorious or whatever. And, you know, in this, I'm just like, what's going on in this movie? I do not understand. You know, and, and the fact that she, I think this was her first Oscar nomination or whatever. I'm like, is this a Russell Crowe thing where they're like, we should have given this to you for the insider and we apologize. So here's your gladiator award. You know, I kind Kind of think that's what's going on here, but well, she didn't win. But she at least got nominated, right? Yeah. So, was she, so was she not nominated for Casablanca? I don't think so. I think this was her first nomination. Oof. Yeah. Um, did you buy that she was nineteen? No. Although that's like Steve McQueen in the Blob. Yeah. Like Steve McQueen's like forty, and he's supposed to play like a sixteen-year-old or something like that in the Blob. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's weird, but I mean that's not uncommon. I don't think you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just it's just something which which they do. Yeah, in Hollywood. Well, the one the one other character that I guess we should talk about um, is P- Pilar, which was played by Katina Paxanu. Mm-hmm. Pashanu, Paxanu, and she actually won the award for best supporting actress in this and. Uh, I kept thinking of the Wicked Witch of the West when I was watching her in this role. I don't know. That's just it kept coming to my mind when I was watching it. I guess I can kind of see that. You know, yeah. it's it's a similar type of. I mean, this is from that same time period. You know, it's weird, and and that's part of this movie. And I don't know if this is something you were planning on getting into or whatever, but like the idea that this movie is in color. And everything in 1943, and like the size, the scope of this movie, like this movie is massive. I mean, this mm-hmm. would be like, you know, a super humongous blockbuster of like, you know, Titanic, promor- pr- Titanic proportions, you know, today. And is unusual. It's almost anachronistic in a sense. You know, I mean, we saw things like this with like Gone with the Wind and everything for sure, but this was not the norm by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, this is a year after Casablanca and you look at sort of like the production value and everything. And it's like, they spent a good chunk of change on this movie, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was all on location. Like you could tell this was all in the outdoors. Like they were in the mountains when they were filming this stuff. Like there's no sets or anything. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, oh, maybe some of the, there's like the cave scenes and stuff would have been sets, but, uh, mm-hmm. but it's all outdoors. Like it's a beautiful movie. It's, it's really stunning visually. And you know, the, t- the early Technicolor, it looks good in it. You know, the early Technicolor, the colors aren't quite right. There's some absolutely atrocious day for night photography in this film, but that's a whole nother story. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm not a really a big fan of like color from this era. I mean, there's sometimes where they can like push it in a certain way. Like when they like really, really sort of like go for it, like with gone with the wind or, um, you know, Wizard of Oz, you know, where I think like, oh man, that's amazing. But in a movie like this, where they're trying for something like maybe a bit more naturalistic, I'm like, you can really sort of like see the seams of the technology here. And, and I almost feel like it would look more realistic and be more sort of like emotionally investing if it were in black and white, because mm-hmm. it wouldn't have that sort of like pastel, almost like artificial painterly look to it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Cool, huh? 
Well, there was a so they won for best actress in a supporting role, but they were nominated for a few more. They were nominated for best picture, best actor, best actress, uh, best actor in a supporting role for Akeem Tamaroff, uh, best cinematography for color for Ray Renan, uh, best art direction for color Hans Dreer. Haldine Douglas and interior decorations by Bertram Granger. Uh, best film editing by Sherman Todd and John F. Link Sr. And best music score for a dramatic or comedy picture by Victor Young. And uh, definitely the music here was one of those epic, you know, love love picture scores yeah, of the time. I can't get it out of my head, no matter how hard <laughs> I try. Put it on your ringtone. So, so... On a whole, what did you what did you think of the film? Did you did you like it? Did you like the story? Um, not particularly. I mean, uh, the the thing about it, and you know, getting back into the fact that this is such a massive production, like as soon as the overture started, I was like, oh, I see. You know, like this is a movie which is so self important. You know, I mean, you can tell, I mean, the fact that it is this sort of like massive epic for an event which occurred like literally like six years before this. And like, I totally understand it. You know, historically speaking, I understand, you know, how like where the world was at 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 this point in time. And like, we're basically like tracking like recent history and trying to figure out how we got to this point and everything like that. And, you know, especially from an American perspective, this being an American movie and everything, you know, all of that is really interesting. But at the same time, I just feel like, they knew, I think probably because the book was so big, right? I'm assuming they yeah. they knew what they were doing in terms of the scale and everything. And they were like, this is going to be the best movie ever made. And when you have that attitude, like before you even like roll like a, a frame of a of, of film, I think you're almost like stacking the deck against you. Because you can't help but come across as pretentious. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like what I felt every step of the way in this movie is that it's like super pretentious. Even though, like, you know what it reminded me of? Like in terms of like the scale and everything. Because it has that epic style to it, but it's a very small movie, like underneath. Like the first half of the movie is basically just a bunch of people like sitting in caves, like talking to each other, you know, it it felt a lot like Che where it's like this, this massive, you know, two movie long epic, but most of the time, I mean, yes, there are some like, you know, battle sequences and stuff, but most of the time it's like a bunch of guys sitting around the forest, just like talking and asthma attacks. Yeah. You know? (laughs) So, I I mean, I don't know. I, I really got that impression and that kind of like turned me off from it. And and not to mention the fact that, like, I did not buy the love story at all. It felt incredibly forced. Yeah. And then you add on top of that all of these, you know, like, racial stereotypes and stuff like that. And I'm just kind of like, look, I get it, guys. I understand, especially in the time period, like, why people really responded to it. Because, you know, it. I'm sure it really struck a chord with with society, you know? I mean, there's the whole speech about, like, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you, you know, you're an American. Why why do you care about what's going on in Spain? And he's like, well, because of all this stuff, which is going to sound, like, really, really, uh, you know, um, uh, telling of what's going to happen in a couple of years from now when everyone's watching this movie. You know, I mean, like, I, I get it. I totally get it. And yet looking at it now, almost like on a technical level, and I'm not saying like, you know, 1943 technology was terrible, but I'm talking about in terms of like technique, storytelling technique and everything like that. It, it does not hold up for me at all. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. I mean, like I said at the beginning, this isn't really my type of movie. These big epic, as you called it, Oscar bait movies, right? There's not really my kind of thing. And based on what I watched here, like, I think this movie could be cut in half and be much better. Like you could cut a significant portion of this film out and make a much tighter, better film. Like there's some really neat stuff in it. Like the story is interesting. Like, okay, so this guy who believes in what he's fighting for 
wants to fight with these rebels because because he believes in it and he's you know you've got to fight for what you believe in and so the important thing that they've got to do is they've got to blow up this bridge i think that's a really neat idea for a story and you know there's some uh there's some you know headbutting that occurs within this group of rebels which is kind of interesting but it's really drawn out and it's really it, you know, they really keep coming back to these things and is stretching it out. And yeah, I don't buy this romance because he's looks quite a bit older than she does. And I don't know, maybe well, not that age is an issue, I guess, but I just, it just happened so quick and I didn't buy it and buy the love story of it. But, uh, there's, there is still some really good stuff in this movie. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's just too long and it's, I wouldn't not recommend you go see it, but I don't, I wonder if we've lost something because of how long it's been and it just doesn't resonate like it did at the time. I believe that cinema can remain valuable and important decades and, you know, even a hundred years after these films have been made, because we're, we're starting to approach that time where some very important films are pretty close to getting to be a hundred years old now, right? Some of the early cinema, there's some important stuff out there. On my show for the Hitchcock, The Lodger, we just talked about The Lodger, and that film's 90 years old, and I think that's a very valid film and can still strike a chord with people in this day and age, right? So I don't think that it's, it doesn't work because it's old, but I wonder if the story just doesn't translate as well because of the times that we live in. I mean, that could be. I mean, I, I just keep on thinking of, like, I mean, literally, like, the year before this was Casablanca. It's a movie which deals with a lot of the same themes, a lot of the same subject matter and everything like that. And yet, obviously, like, that movie is one of the best movies ever made. It totally mm. holds up today oh, on, yeah. on pretty much every single level. And I think it gets the same point that this movie is getting across in a much better way. And I think, like, if you look at that movie, like, it's not, like, overly self-indulgent or anything like that, whereas this movie totally is. And, mm. um, yeah, I, I think that's that's probably my biggest, my biggest problem with this movie, uh, for sure, you know. Cool, right on. Well, did you have any, any other final thoughts that you wanted to mention here mike yeah i do um okay let's assume that this is the first movie that they decided to show on movie night and perhaps it wasn't we don't know and let's assume even though at the time i don't think uh that this was the intention but let's assume that trip did pick this because i think you know it's probably pretty well established that this became his thing if i'm trip because i've been in this position okay you've got to know your audience if i'm trip and i'm living a hundred years from now and I'm trying to reel people in with movies, which seem to be like an art form, which is kind of starting to lose its steam. And maybe people aren't really so much into movies at this particular point in time. And I'm trying to make this a weekly event. I don't think I'm going to start with For Whom the Bell Tolls. Because for one thing, it's three freaking hours long. But for another thing... Like we've said, you know, even now it's old. Then it's going to be even older. And it's that's definitely going to have like a disconnect with your audience, I think. I would not have picked this at all. I probably would have, have picked, you know, if he wanted to go for something in this in this particular, you know, realm, I probably would have gone with Casablanca. I mean, really, it is sort of like the perfect choice for, you know, anything. It's like, you know, like what? Let's start with let's start watching movies. You know, like let's look at this from Flox's perspective. I've never seen a movie before. What should I watch first? Uh, Casablanca, probably probably a pretty solid start. You know, if we're going with sort of the meta knowledge that this maybe sort of has to be a Paramount movie for unknown reasons. Um, <laughs> I don't. Maybe Godfather, although that's also three hours long. I don't know. That was just my thinking on it. I mean, what do you think about the idea of this being a a, a pick for movie night on aboard the NX-01? I get the impression that this wouldn't have been the first one. Yeah, I don't think it was either. But for our purposes, let's say it is. Let's say it is. Okay, yeah, then I, I agree. This is definitely not something you want to start with. Um, you know, I know that I've got some pretty obscure film taste, and I invited a bunch of my people my friends over for a couple of movies recently and I'm like you know what I want to watch the thing 
right? 1982, John Carpenter, because that's like one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. So I'm like, I just put it out there. I'm like, you know what? I'm watching The Thing. If anybody wants to come over, you can watch it. And, you know, actually it was a friend of mine who hadn't seen it that, that goes to church with me. He came over, he watched it, a bunch of other people did. They enjoyed it. They thought it was really good. And I'm like, yeah, this is great. You know what we can do? We can do a Carpenter night. So so next time we do it, like a month later, I'm like, let's watch Escape from New York. I'm like, yeah. So we watch Escape from New York. Everybody hated it. They all thought it was terrible. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? So, uh, you know, the next time I did it was, uh, I was actually stuck in the middle of uh, watching, not, I don't want to use the word stuck, but I was like right in the middle of uh, doing the Soderbergh rewatch with you there. And I'm like, I got to, I want to invite people over. I don't want to be home alone tonight. And I want to watch a movie, but what am I? Okay, fine. I'll ask them if they want to watch Ocean's 13 with me. So we watched, we all watched Ocean's 13 on the big projector and by, and, that HD DVD transfer was just brutal. There was crushed colors everywhere. It was terrible. No, but that was intentional. That was, I have a frame from the, this is going way off topic, but whatever. We could, <laughs> maybe this could be a supplement or something like that. But I actually have a frame from the print made, uh, the, the, the print, of, the literal print of Ocean's 13, which played in theaters, where it has all of the information, Larry Blake and Steven Soderbergh packed all of the information about the transfer and the, the, the masters of Ocean's 13 um, and, and exactly what should be done in every case and why, you know, blah, 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 the technical information about that. And I guarantee you that... That transfer that you saw on the HD DVD is the same exact transfer that you saw in theaters back in whatever it was. And those crushed colors and everything like that, I think, were completely intentional. What's, um, I'll send you the thing. It's amazing. It's super amazing because it's just this dense information about, like, you know, pixel ratios and color spaces and everything. But you can tell they were like, look, look. Here's the thing. We know that that you know a million people are going to make a million transfers of movies after we're dead and we want everyone to know that this is exactly how it's supposed to be. So just don't mess with this movie. Well, who is the who is the character that was in the elevator shaft and was was it the Chinese guy? Might have been. I, I remember. At, the 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 in that scene when he's in the elevator shaft, the blacks are just crushed and they just look terrible. I think it was supposed to be that way. I really do. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you got more knowledge than I do. I'll, I'll send you the I'll thing. You. I'll send you the thing. Yeah, I want to see that. So, excellent. Right on. Well, uh, Ocean's 13 is not the only thing we've been discussing here on the network this week. So, uh, take a quick listen to this little clip and see what else you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Literary Treks. Oh, Matthew, I'm doing just fine. You know, it's always fun every week to hop on here and talk Star Trek books and comics with you and... I don't know if you realize this, Matthew, but this is our 200th episode of Literary... Wait a minute, Matthew. We don't host this show anymore. The 602 Club. I honestly was thrilled with the way that they set it up because, like you said, sort of like uh, Russian dolls, I guess, um, is a good way to explain it. You introduce one character in this existing show, and then it leads to that character's own show, which leads to the next one's own show. The Edge a Star Trek Discovery podcast. There were a lot of comments talking about this roller coaster ride. Mm-hmm. You know, yay, I'm so excited, Trek's on. Oh, it's a prequel. You know, oh, mm-hmm. I saw the first trailer and I loved it. Oh, Brian Fuller's no longer working on it. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's we're getting all this diversity. Oh, look at the Klingons, right? And you could just see it. Seriously, some fans have gone through some serious roller coaster rides. To the journey! And so I could see the Herojin viewing themselves as very noble, very civilized. They don't let their prey suffer, but really they're doing these horrific things, just like we do here in the real world when we have to go fight wars. Yeah, absolutely. I think they go home and they write an epic poem about it, and that makes it okay. (laughs) (laughs) The the Herojin equivalent of Beowulf. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Excellent, Mike. Well, I really appreciate you uh, joining us tonight. I really thank you for coming on and and, uh, going through that three-hour movie with us. Uh, Where can people find you if they would like to talk to you about For Whom the Bell Tolls or Ocean's 13? 
Uh, well, you can find me uh, right here on the network doing a show called Stage 9 where we talk about uh, people who make Star Trek. And you can find me on a show that I do with you called The Edge, which is here, also here on Trek.fm where we talk about Star Trek Discovery. And you can find me on thenerdparty.com doing a show called Great Shot Kid where we talk about um, the people who make Star Wars, and you can find me on CommentaryTrackStars.com uh, doing a show called Commentary Track Stars, where we talk about uh, whatever we want to and do audio commentaries for movies and stuff like that. And you can also find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K. Excellent. Right on. And me, if you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter at Brandon Metella. Um I'm doing uh, while I'm doing this here Warp Five. I'm also on the edge with you, and you can find me over on the Fandom Podcast Network, where I'm doing a podcast called Good Evening, an Alfred Hitchcock podcast, with my friends Chris and Tom, and that's a lot of fun. Uh, check it out. Uh, you can find me on the Babel Conference as well. So if you guys want to talk to us about this and other places, the Babel Conference, which is uh, the Trek FM listeners only group. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field, and uh, it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose send to a show and select the name of the show, which is Warp 5, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm or Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Uh, I'd like to thank very much our associate producers of Warp 5, and we've got a few of them. We really appreciate your support. We couldn't run the network without you. We couldn't do this show without you. We've got the wonderful Norman C. Lau. We've got... Floyd Dorsey, who's our host. We've got Mike Morrison, Tim Cooper, Justin Oser, and Mark Flessa. So thank you very much, everybody. We appreciate your support. And uh, yeah, I guess that's about it. So what else do I got to say? Patreon? Mike Floyd normally does this. So I forget sometimes. Patreon. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. Excellent, right on. So, are we going to do this again? Yeah, yeah. How about next week? Because, you know, Warp 5 is a Friday show. Stage 9 is a Friday show. How about next week? Movie nights at my place. Do, Sounds good. Right do, on. Do, so, to Sunset Boulevard over on Stage Nine. Is it three hours long? Nope. Okay, good. Let's do it. All right. <laughs>